This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. From the Palmetto Swamps, to the Piney Woods, to the Oak Flats, you're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast. You're listening to the Louisiana Bowhunter Podcast, presented by Relentless Boats, quality custom aluminum aluminum fabrication down in Thibodeau. Um, a lot of exciting things coming up in the new year with some new model boats, some new designs, and things like that. So exactly what you would expect from a boat builder down on the bayou in Thibodeau. So live Relentless Boat Relentless. Check out RelentlessBoatsLA.com. And Happy New Year. As you're listening to this podcast, this is New Year's Day, and we have made it into 2021. And Kyler, are you ready for the new year? I'm ready for it, man. I, uh, I'm, I, I am ready. I think it's interesting. We caught both holidays on a release this year. That's yeah, Fridays, good. Friday, Friday holiday season makes for long holiday weekends, which I am a fan of because Absolutely. for every reason, you know, it's more time in the woods for hunters. It's more time with family more time away from work and the grind and makes makes long, long weekends are always acceptable in my world so mm-hmm. absolutely um so it's really been holiday week since since our last episode i know you've had some success i really haven't hunted much i've spent most of the last week um with family for holiday things so just quickly before we move into the uh the topic for today's episode tell us a little bit about what you've been posting all over facebook well, um, last year, um, I, I had uh, kind of gone through this real sacrificial-filled year of starting up a business, you know, where you give up a lot of stuff you like to do, and you work 18 or 20 hours a day, legitimately not, you know, exaggeratingly saying 18, 20, like, get home at midnight, wake up at 4 or 5, go back to work, and and uh, last year, 
I regretted, uh, and I don't have a lot of regrets, but I regretted not hunting as much as I standard do in a standard year. Um, and this year, I promised myself that I was going to get my business to a place where I could um, take a couple of days off, or a week off, possibly even the whole week between Christmas and New Year's off, um, and hunt. And um, and I did that. And uh, even though it's in the it's, you know Wednesday of that week, it's December thirtieth right now when we're talking. Um, I did not see it coming that I would tag out before January. Like I'm done. I don't. I'm I'm currently. Um, I've moved into guide status. Um, I'm gonna become a self filmer with an iPhone and a tree stand next to my buddies, and um, we're gonna spend the next week and a half of the rut. And I'm gonna team up with Jonathan Watson, um, uh, Austin Bradford, Zach Blanchard, and, and we're gonna try and kill some deer on public land. And I'm gonna try and put them into some areas that I know that are holding deer. But I killed uh, my second buck. On Sunday evening, that was there's not enough time in this intro to tell that story. That was a really wild story, but it essentially ended with me witnessing um, a snort wheeze in person at 20 yards, and it was possibly one of the most exhilarating sounds and and events of my life. Because I mean, when you hear that, it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Um, and then, uh, the very next day, um, I shot a, a really nice nine point from the ground at 33 yards sitting on a Turkey seat. Um, and, uh, that was, that was at like three Oh five PM. I'd been set up for five minutes. So I'm, I'm out of, I'm out of bucks. I'm out. I mean, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, kind of odd, really odd, but hell of a year. It's been a good awesome. one. Uh, the, the only story I have to tell since the last time we talked was i i actually went and tried to film a hunt i tried to film levi hunting yesterday and Mm -hmm. um i say tried we we had a good day we enjoyed the time and and you know saw plenty of deer you know we had a good hunt it wasn't a bad hunt but one of the disappointing things that happened uh we in the morning we um we hunted and we were kind of in a uh, a thicket, but an open thicket, if that makes any sense. I mean, it, it's thick. Mm-hmm. You can tell when you're sitting in there, you feel like you're in the middle of a thicket. But, you know, we could see 70, 80 yards all around us, you know, yeah, willow swamp kind of thick stuff. And uh, we, we had seen several deer, and the deer were acting kind of spooky, but not towards us. It wasn't like they were smelling us or looking and seeing us or any of those kind of things. And we finally figured out a coyote come along, and and uh, we saw the coyote several times, and he was obviously running all around through this this thicket we were in, and and just making everything nervous and pushing deer around and stuff like that. And so mid morning, I'd say mid morning, about ten o'clock, we uh, we had what sounded like two bucks fighting south of us, just out of sight, and. And a few minutes later, here comes a couple of does from that direction. And, you know, you kind of have that feeling, oh, you know, something might happen here. Because there's obviously some deer moving around over there. And here comes some deer from that area. And then a few minutes later, right along behind him, here comes the coyote again. And Hmm. 
he actually laid down on the ground just like a dog would just i guess he was tired from running around he actually laid down out in front of levi about 60 or 70 yards and he looked over at me and he was like man let's just get down this coyote's got everything all messed up you know and so we climbed down and i'm you know videoing so i said hey let me climb down before you i'm gonna do some get some pictures and video of you getting down out of the stand and all that stuff and so i'm doing that and he lets his bow down to me and i grab his bow and i step off to the side four or five steps and set it out of the way so he can get down and nobody step on it or trip over anything like that he gets down out of the stand he's packing his stuff up and we're just kind of talking a little bit and i'm like all right i'm gonna go over here and get my stuff together so we can walk out and as i'm telling him that i look and i see something moving and then i'm like that's a deer it's like there's a deer and it's walking straight to us so we squat down and it's like a mid 130s nice mature eight point (laughs) and he's walking straight to us and this deer walked we squatted down next to the tree that he had climbed up in and it basically got an average size cottonwood tree you know so not a huge tree but big enough for us both to kind of lean against and this deer walks within about eight steps of us oh man and stops at like eight steps and stares like like he can see us but the wind was in our favor you know he can see us because we're like a blob right here in front of him at eight steps and then he you know it was like he knew something wasn't right so he just kind of kept on going the way he was going and and so as he gets past us we kind of turn around he's he can't get to the story i guess the part i missed about that was i set his bow off to the side so he couldn't get to his bow to try to shoot the deer because i had set the bow too far away and so the deer gets past us about 50 or 60 yards and he grabs his bow and he's like let's turn around i'm gonna grunt at him a few times and see if he'll come back so when we do this we kind of figure out what's going on there's a doe um in the direction he's heading that we didn't know had walked up there about 50 or 60 yards from us and she's feeding and he's walking straight to her so it kind of all played in our favor in that regard he was so focused on the doe he looked at us for a minute and just went on over there to her so we're squatted it's, down it's, it's it's crazy how I, I mean this has happened to me so many times now with does and and even more recently bucks if you don't move they can't see you like i i, I really believe it I believe if you do not move and you don't do anything startling and, and, and I actually like, I've got a, I've got a beard, so I don't wear face paint, but I'll squint my eyes. So like my eyes don't look like eyes to them, you know, squint, squint real small. So, and, um, but I really believe it's, they're, they're no different than like the T-Rex in Jurassic park. You don't move. They don't see you. They're not, you know, uh, made alert and they don't run off. Um, yes, you look weird. Yes, you look like a blob. Yes, you look unnatural. But I think they are kind of thinking if it was dangerous, it would have moved by now. You know? Yeah, I, um, I don't know what I, I've had so many different experiences in this case. And in my opinion, a little different from yours. I think a lot of it has to do with time of the year and the deer's dis, uh, his disposition, so to speak, uh, when he arrives in that spot. You know, during mm-hmm. this time of the year, obviously the bucks are so preoccupied with what they're doing that they they let their guard down and they don't pay a lot of attention. And to your point, when they see something, if it doesn't immediately startle them or move or do something, they're just kind of like whatever, and they go on about what they're doing. But uh, so we, we did that. We squatted down. We grunted, and the deer kind of hung out over there for a little bit, and we were squatted down so we could barely see them moving around. And then another buck comes from the other direction. <laughs> 
<laughs> of and, course. Yeah. And he's not quite <laughs> as big, but he's a mature deer. I mean, he was big enough to shoot. He was a shooter. Um, uh, he was about the same size in in all ways, except not quite as wide. And uh, he comes, and he almost comes in bow range. So we almost videoed him shooting one from the ground. And that was really exciting. The disappointing thing was, you know, the coyote had us both just kind of lost confidence that a deer was going to kind of walk around. The deer were just kind of running all through there, and you could tell they were disturbed. And we just lost confidence that a mature deer that we were after was was going to show up. So we went ahead and got If we just just sat five, ten more minutes, you know, we would have gotten – yeah. A ten yard broadside shot, perfect on camera and all that. So that was a little disappointing. Well, what what I what I you know what, your story there is kind of like the third example this year that I've I've um, heard of or experienced where um, I I'm becoming very um, self aware of like my confidence level and where I hunt and. I, the first buck that I killed from the ground, that big five and a half or six and a half year old six point that I shot on public land from the ground set, I felt like a total fool. Like a, I mean, literally out loud saying, this is stupid. This will never work. There's no way I'm going to kill anything right here where I'm at. Like, this is ridiculous. I had zero, maybe negative confidence in that set that day and i shot that buck and then the buck that i shot on sunday evening a couple days ago um i i kind of pride myself on really getting away from people on public land and i hunted an area with my buddy zach where there was a high chance of people hunting there also wasn't that far away it's kind of you know not a well-known spot but you, you had a pretty good chance of seeing people and that day we did an all-day sit and we saw three other hunters walk through there, two coming in, one going out midday, and then there was us. So five people in a couple hundred acres, a couple hundred yards of each other in this area, and I shot a buck that evening. And then the third example is y'all feeling like that spot wasn't worth your time after the coyote. And, and then y'all had that experience. So I'm becoming almost critical of, you know, when I feel like things are not in perfect alignment, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know, thing like, and, and so I'm, I'm almost more of the mindset of, you know, F it, let's stick it out. Let's see yeah. what happens. I, you know I, what I mean? To play off that and kind of the last point I'll make about this before we move into our, our topic for the episode. So two years ago, the first the first buck at all um that I killed off of my property in East Feliciana Parish. I hunted one morning before work simply because um I I knew it was a good spot for the weather I had, but I didn't have a lot of I hadn't spent much time in there scouting prior to very early season and I didn't have any reason to hunt other than it was a real pretty morning and I just wanted to go sit in my stand for a couple hours because I knew that I had the right conditions should there be a deer around there. And um, I, the, the hunt began by, or I say began, uh, you know, the first thing that happened in the hunt was I saw some does come through and they acted kind of funny. And I wondered, is there a buck behind them or something behind them? Because the way they were moving, they were moving through the woods like they were trying to move on to somewhere else. You know what I mean? Not running, but they... Obviously, yeah. weren't just feeding. They weren't just loafing. They weren't calm deer, so to speak. And um, a minute later, a coyote comes through. 
and I kind of squeaked at him with my mouth a little. I was trying to, you know, I wanted to shoot him, obviously. And um, squeaked at him with my mouth a little bit, and that didn't work. And um, so the only thing else I had that I thought might work is I had a bleat can, you know, the little Primos dough bleat, estrus bleat can. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I bleated at him several times, and it actually worked in terms of it got his attention, and he came closer, but I never got a shot at him. So I had been bleating several, more than I would have bleated if I were trying to bleat at a deer. You know, and um, he meandered around till he got downwind of me, and, and then he left. Well, a few minutes later, here comes a, a nice eight-point, and um, he passed by me just out of bow range, and as he got past me, I grunted and bleated at him one time, and he turned, turned around, come straight to me, and I made the shot. And, you know, just looking back to what happened yesterday morning with Levi, I think, I guess this is just a kind of an experience that I've been thinking about since yesterday morning, and comparing it back against previous hunts and to kind of play off what you said about sticking it out and kind of going with your plan and not being not being distracted by 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 other things i think that we are preconditioned to kind of think that coyotes are almost i'm talking about coyotes but i guess any predator but in this case coyotes um are almost like synonymous in terms of their effect as we are and like my experience as a hunter in the woods doesn't support that and i need to learn to uh, uh, to mm-hmm. to accept that because the way a deer responds to a coyote a, a coyote can obviously mess your hunt up in terms of a calm deer that may be going to make his way in the bow range ends up getting you know pushed away but a deer doesn't blow out of the area the way they do if you walk in on a deer a person does they're used to living they live in this environment with these coyotes. They know what they are, right? And I guess with the exception of the idea of a coyote actually, you know, getting very close and trying to actually, and, and chasing them to the point the coyote's trying to catch them. The deer, you know, we, we, I feel like it's just kind of our natural instinct to think, well, the coyote's got this thing all messed up. But looking back on it, that that doesn't hold true for my experiences, and I just shared one uh, experience from a couple of years ago. But I've had a lot of experiences where I've seen coyotes, I've had coyotes run deer off, and you know later on saw more deer. You know saw the same deer, seen deer run yeah. fifty yards and then just go right back to feeding and make their way right past me and that kind of stuff. And the same thing for the other morning. As I look back on it, this coyote at one point these does were acting real suspicious these two does specifically that we saw kind of early on they were acting real funny and for the longest time we were both kind of like i wonder if there's a buck over there in that thicket that has been you know pushing these does around and 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 maybe that's what they're doing because they didn't act spooked they just act really curious you know like Mm -hmm. something wasn't right they wouldn't settle down and the coyote ends up coming out of that area and he he walks right past the deer i mean 20 yards past him and they of course throw their tail up and bound off a few steps big big hops and, and watch him walk by and he walks right by and goes on about his business and same thing for you know the deer that end up walking past us on the ground this coyote comes in there the does see him and they kind of run off they don't run way off they just kind of run off past us and stand over there and look at him and he lays down on the ground and then he gets up and moves on and 10 minutes later we're on the ground and here comes a buck from the exact same direction that we had just seen the coyote so i think it's a maybe something to consider is that we oftentimes we see a coyote to your point you know you feel like oh everything's messed up but i mean this is the world they live in you know 
And and to your point with public land, these deer are used to people walking in and out midday. You know, they're used yeah. to things changing throughout the day, different things happening in and around them. And I don't think that that things like a coyote or like somebody walking down the road and not necessarily putting direct pressure on a deer is going to change the way they act for like a whole 24 hours or something. It's just something they're used to. That's how they survive. Mm-hmm. You know, they're still going to be a deer. So, so I'm going to try to find a way to segue here from what we're talking about into our guest. <laughs> so I had the same thing happen at Levi's a couple weeks ago, but it was a bear. <laughs> and uh oh you saw one yeah so i was I didn't see one the first morning that i hunted with him i was set up and i didn't see any deer until like nine o'clock and um oh he, he, uh, the, the the trigger on the gate must have been broken yeah something was wrong uh, they were all held up or sleeping in or something and um <laughs> so all of a sudden just, you know, kind of how deer do, they just, I'm, I can see, I'm looking out across this select cut kind of sagebrush CRP looking stuff where you can see deer moving around in that stuff. And yeah, I can see a long way. And then, you know, like you've said before, the deer just appear. There's just something, I hear yeah. something that kind of sounds like a, yep. like a suction in the mud. And I look to my right and there's a doe standing like 25 yards from me. I'm like, where in the world did you come from? Because I could see 300 yards behind her, you know. And uh, my my theory was there was a little thicket, brush brushy, thicker area right in there where she was, and I think they were laid up, bedded up in there, and they'd just been laying there all morning. And um, so these does get up, and they move past me, and not long behind them, here comes a a nice, like, three-year-old nine-point, really pretty buck, but not a buck that's old enough that they like to shoot on that property, and um, going to be a real beautiful deer one day. He comes past me following the same trail as the does and they they basically went out to a road that that i walked in on and i walked down the road and then up this edge of this kind of slough ditch off of the road and climbed up in a tree and i'm only like 40 yards from the road so the does went out to the road and they kind of fed around in the road a little bit and went up the road and i guess they crossed and went over into the other section of woods i couldn't really see them once they got up up the road a bit well the buck makes the same path and, but when he hits the road, he stops, and he does that traffic cop thing where he's looking left and right up and down the road, you know, and something catches his eye, and he's looking up the road away from me, and he's alert, and he he's doing the head bob, like, and I thought to myself at one point, I was like, I wonder if Levi's walking down the road, because we hadn't had any communications about getting down out of the stand or anything, so I'm like, what in the world? And he makes one 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 snort, just whew, and he wheels around and he bounds back into the into the brush right out in front of me, and he walks right back past me just how he came, and kind of goes back out and just walks off. And I'm like, what? And I, I kind of turn back around, and there's a bear walking down the road. And I've never <laughs> seen a bear in person from a tree stand. The only bears I've ever seen in the wild were like at a, at a national park or something on vacation. And um, I i'm watching this bear walks down the road and it's a big bear i'm guessing it was a boar from the looks of it um and it it walks down the road past me and it crosses the little ditch the little little ditch slough right that run along behind me and we got on the other side it did the it did the blue bear thing where it stood up and scratches back on the tree 
<laughs> and licked its lips and huffed a few times and just walked on. And so that that was really cool because I, you know, we have this thing going on these days where people are starting to see more and more bears on their trail cameras. Um, I I live here in East Feliciana Parish, and I've seen uh, over the last couple of years a lot of people posting trail cam pictures from this area and more up around Greensburg, where there's more and more bears. My property in Mississippi, we have two bears that stay on our property from like april until september every year they're always there all of our cameras that we run in the spring and in the summer we take their pictures almost every day we we don't put out any feed or anything in the summer because they just tear the feeders up and then i don't know where they go in the winter but we'll never see them or take pictures of them in the winter um and so it's becoming a a thing you know around the state where the bear population is growing and it's obviously has been pretty established in some areas. So this is a podcast that we've been wanting to do for quite a while. And we've finally been able to link up with the person that can tell us the most about bears in Louisiana. So Kyler, I want you to introduce our guest. Yeah, we've got, we've got um, Maria on the phone. Maria, I don't think I caught your last name. Unfortunately, I think uh, Locke has been. My name is Maria Davidson. I'm the large carnivore program manager for the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries in Louisiana. Well, we are excited to have you Very on. Much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm glad to be here. So, so you are uh, you you are the the number one bear uh, researcher or um, program am. manager. The bear program falls falls um and and square in my shop that is that's exciting because we so we have um i I know you're you probably haven't listened to our podcast much but um and we haven't really come out and said this too openly but um podcasts these days are becoming a, a little redundant in topics um as far as like hunting styles or tactics or you know things like you know, what is a balloon and a tree on a ridge mean? You know, st- things that are almost low-hanging fruit topics. And we've covered that stuff years ago. And we're really making an attempt this year to be more informative on things that people might not have ever thought about learning about. Like we, um, uh, for example, we just did a, a podcast with the owners of Thistleweight WMA. Um, oh, the, nice. the Thistleweights, um, and that was super informative because they've owned that property for 110 years, um, and they lease it to the state for one dollar a year, um, and uh, and so we've done some stuff with John Jonathan Bordelon. We have done some other um, some other podcasts in the past with um, with uh, other biologists, learning more about mainly deer, but the bears and bear encounters bear population um that's something that people are seeing more and more every year and we are really looking forward to learning more about that from you uh today so um can you tell us where uh, where you're located and how long you've been uh, affiliated with this program well, I have been with the department for 25 years and I've worked with bears for the vast majority of that time. Um, you know, the Louisiana black bear was listed as a federally protected species 
up until 2016. It was actually the only American black bear that was ever afforded federal protection. So that was a little bit unique. In 2016, the bear was delisted. The Fish and Wildlife Service deemed that it was recovered. And we delisted the bear in the spring of 2016. Shortly thereafter, within that year, a group of individuals sued the Fish and Wildlife Service to relist the bear. And that lawsuit was filed in Washington, D.C., in the circuit court in Washington, D.C. The Fish and Wildlife Service um, was the defendant in that lawsuit. And the Safari Club filed a motion as as to um, join as an intervener. So they intervened in that lawsuit and also defended it. So, oh gosh, I, I can't remember what month that happened. But in early 2020, the judge dismissed that lawsuit without prejudice out of that circuit court in D.C., And then since that time, those plaintiffs have refiled the lawsuit here in Louisiana to relist Hmm. the Louisiana black bear on the endangered species list. Safari Club has has again filed a motion to intervene, and and that's basically where where we stand now. so you is know, it, it, things is, move is very the, slowly now in the court system. Things take a little bit longer with the pandemic. I think you know courts never move very quickly, but uh-huh. but things are moving even I think a little bit slower with everything kind of taking a little bit longer with COVID. So so 2016 they were it was delisted. Um, what year were they? Was it added to the um, the list? Pardon? What, what year was it? You said it was in delisted 1992. in 1992. Okay, I think I missed that, that year. So I would imagine it's probably not an easy feat for a government agency to um, delist. Like that's not something that's taken lightly to, to come out and say, hey, this is rebounded. The population's good. We have the science to back it. I would imagine there's a lot of approvals and a lot of um, a lot of. Uh, red tape, if you will, to say that an entire population of animals has recovered to an extent. Why would a um, a group or a group fight against that? Do they just want it to be protected so that it can't one day possibly be hunted or something like that? Well, you know, I think that that there's always going to be somebody who disagrees with any type of federal authority in, in, in that regard, and they claimed that the science was not there. You know, when the Fish and Wildlife Service delisted, they delisted claiming recovery, and they say the bear was recovered based on the science, based on the data. The, the research that was conducted was a cooperative effort led by the Department of Wildlife and Fisheries in cooperation with the Fish and Wildlife Service we contracted with the University of Tennessee and, and USGS and, and spent an enormous amount of money on all of this data collection. We also cooperated in a relocation project. I think that, that you were talking to the Maddens about. We moved bears from Tensaw down into the Avoyles Concordia Parish area over the span of nine years, which ultimately led to um, 
the beginnings of a new population of animals in that area that link the Tensaw and the Point Capi subpopulations, which led to the recovery, which led to that delisting. You know, when the Fish and Wildlife Service lists an animal as endangered or threatened, they have to they have to have a roadmap to recovery. They have to say, you know, what does it take to recover this animal? What does it take to delist it? You can't just leave it hanging out there forever. So there's some delisting criteria. And so in order to meet that criteria, we met as a group and determined what steps needed to be taken, what data needed to be collected, what conservation measures needed to be put into place, and, and worked for a couple of decades to make that happen. So there was an enormous amount of money spent, an enormous amount of effort spent by multiple agencies, and, and the recovery effort is, is, you know, what happened because of that. But there's always going to be an entity that disagrees with it, and then, of course, the court system is where they go to, to have their side heard, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I... I think that's extremely interesting because I didn't know that it was delisted. Number one, um, and number two, I, I guess I, I guess I'm, I'm I'm trying to understand the motive of an organization to want to have it put back on the list after y'all have just like you said proven and hit the data or gotten the data needed to delist it. Um, that's not something. That's not a whimsical, uh, you know, f- flip of the wrist and the, the bears are all of a sudden fine. That takes a long time to get there. So it's interesting that somebody would push back against uh, that data that y'all y'all collect. Um, sure. So sure. An, an, another question that I have is: Is there a difference between the Louisiana black bear and another type of black bear that's in the United States? Well, the Louisiana black bear currently is a is a subspecies of American black bear, which is the bear that was on the list. American black bear across the United States is not a listed species. You can hunt them in Arkansas and other states. That that's a, mm-hmm. a game animal that you can hunt. In Louisiana, it was a subspecies that was listed in 1992. So just because of some genetic differences, they were listed as a subspecies. There's actually some genetic work that's ongoing that is now saying, you know, yeah, I really don't think that the differences that we see genetically are enough to classify it a completely different subspecies. And and it would not surprise me within the next few years with the advent of of all of the new genetic work that they can do, because this this field is growing all the time, that they're going to be able to say, yeah, I I really don't think that these animals were a subspecies to begin with, or oh, the okay. opposite. Yes, it it really is, and that would change the argument completely, now, wouldn't it? What well, what are some sure. of the yeah, absolutely. What are some of the general characteristics that might be I guess to say the most obvious characteristics that one, or I guess historically that people see as the differentiation between the American and Louisiana. Is it just simply the the area they live in, or is there some 
physical characteristics about these animals that make people think they might be a subspecies? You know, when they were originally listed, they were listed due to skull morphology differences being just skull measurement differences between the Louisiana skull measurements versus skull measurements from bears from other parts of the country. And if it would have been a, a large enough data set, then, then I think that that might hold water a little better, but it wasn't a very large data set. It was only a very limited number of skull measurements actually that, that were done. But the skull measurements themselves were somewhat, were somewhat different as opposed to other American black bears. I will say this, our coastal bears appearance-wise look different than even bears from northern Louisiana. You know, I can physically tell a difference between looking at a coastal bear and looking at a tensaw bear. They just look different. They have a completely different hair coat. But, you know, that that's kind of easy to understand. They live in a completely different habitat. They live in a, a salty habitat that that you know, I think just lends itself towards not having the same type of hair coat. They're, they have much shorter hair. Their hair is very, very pig-like. In the summertime, you can almost see through their hair coat completely. You know how you can see through a pig's mm -hmm. hair and see its skin? Yeah. You can mm -hmm. kind of do that with those coastal bears. So that's the more the of northern like a... bears, their hair is longer and finer and thicker, a little shinier. That our northern bears are prettier than our coastal bears. So that that I guess that lends itself. I guess what you're saying is that lends itself to more of an evolutionary kind of thing, where they're just it's an adaptation more than a species. Well, it, well, it is. It that's correct. And and you know they say that the the tensaw bears and the coastal bears are more similar genetically than say our point capi bears that have some of the similarities from the minnesota bears that were released in the 60s but when you v look at them visually they still don't don't look the same but if you separate animals geographically and and they remain separate and they have no com you know they have no ability to get back together they can begin to not only genetically separate phenotypically they can separate and they can begin to look different interesting so historically speaking and and going back to i i guess i i, I don't want to say a year because i don't want to sound completely ignorant in, in asking <clears throat> this question but if we go way back to maybe before you know, real concerted efforts to science and biology and stuff like that. Uh, do we have data or do we at least theorize that there was a much, much larger bear population across the state at one point and what may have contributed to that decline, if there was? Well, you, you know, that's kind, that's kind of hard to say. I mean, you can theorize that based on habitat and then, you know, based on habitat clearing and things like that. W what happened to large carnivores can be hunting, you know, like cougars were, were hunted almost into extinction in some of the states. But when you're talking about bears, especially in the Mississippi alluvial valley, you're talking about habitat loss. And when you you look at a state like Louisiana, we lost a significant amount of habitat and bears just hung on by their toenails 
in areas that had just a little bit of habitat hanging on. And that was down in St. Mary and Iberia Parish, down in those coastal marshes. You know, mm-hmm. we had just a little bit in the Morganza spillway, just a few tiny bears left there. And then, of course, up in Tinsaw Parish. Then in the 60s, the department brought in bears from Minnesota. They wanted to augment the population, and we brought in 160-something-odd bears and released the vast majority of those in Point Capee and then a few of them in Tensaw. Back in the day, they didn't know what we know now about translocations, and they brought in bears and, and, and um, turned them loose just summertime releases. The vast majority of those bears did not survive. You know, they always tried to get back to their original home range and, and they were killed on the roads and they just dispersed everywhere. So the vast majority of those bears did not stay put. But our genetic work does show that the Point Capee bears still does have a remnant of those Minnesota bears. Interesting. So when, when you talk about habitat loss, you mainly would the main culprit of that be conversion of land uh, or forest into agricultural land? Correct. Okay. Correct. That's what I, yeah, and that's then, what I was you wondering. Know, you look at some of the, the clear, the um, reforestation programs, like the property you were hunting on with Levi, you know, there's an enormous number of acreages that are now put back through WRP and CRP. And that was part of what led to the recovery of the bear and the delisting. You know, when you started counting up acreage and and the amount of habitat that bears have available to them and how forgiving the land is here in Louisiana and how quickly when you plant something, it will become productive. You know, 20, 25-year-old hardwood planting will quickly become something that is productive and start producing acorns. Mm -hmm. Is is it also, is there also a factor of... um, like rural expansion that that plays into the habitat in other words is a bear the kind of animal kind of like a turkey that needs more space like a deer can live in three acres of forested land behind your neighborhood some animals can't do that is that is that a thing for bears do they need expansion to be able to survive well it just depends on what the habitat is the higher quality the habitat obviously the less acres a bear needs, you know, and a female bear just, you know, needs less acres than a male bear needs. But, you know, having said that, the the bears, for instance, up in Tensaw, they, they survive on, let's, you know, a female is somewhere around 5,000 acres. And, and the male bears are, can be four times that. But, down on the coast, they might need twice that or three times that. They just because the habitat is not is is not near as good, so they need to travel much further to get their needs met. Mm-hmm. But I, what we're seeing now in Louisiana, we have been conducting the same population work on the same properties since 2006. And so, you know, we have a very good idea of the numbers of bears, but it's very, very geographic specific. So it's it's got boundaries associated with it that we can't look outside of and just make a guess because that guess won't tell us anything. 
So in Tinsaw, it is the refuge and Big Lake and Buckhorn and the Delphic tracks. And in Point Capee, it would be the Morganza spillway and a few private lands associated with right outside the spillway, you know, right around there. And after that, we don't know. We do know that the bear population is expanding. We know, for instance, the properties that that you hunted in Tinsaw and Madison parishes, that there's a resident population of bears there that no longer go over to the refuge. So they're no longer counted in that population survey that we do every year. So last year, for the first time, we expanded those hare snare corrals and we expanded them beyond into that whole bear management area so that we could get a better estimate of bear populations for that entire BMA. We also did that for Point Capee. Next year, we'll do that for Concordia and Avoyles Parish. We're going to add some bears. I don't think we're going to add the number of bears people think we're going to add because the the people that I talk to, like yourselves, are deer hunters. And, and you know, we, we hear all the time or I hear all the time, there's so many bears, there's so many bears, there's so many bears. Well, the reality is you're talking to people that are seeing bears in an altered environment, being that, that they're sitting over a bait site. So you're, you're artificially concentrating the animals, just like you're artificially concentrating the deer. You know, mm-hmm. if there's, if there's a couple of bears in your entire property, you might see both of them. So you don't really have a, a good, you know, just because you see both of the bears doesn't mean that there's 10 bears on your property. You might be seeing both of the bears that you have. So I think that that the numbers of bears that we have in the state are probably going to be lower than most people think. We still think the estimate is lower than 1,000 bears in the state, but it's probably between 750 and 1,000. So where are, I mean, you've mentioned obviously the coastal regions and you've mentioned point Capi and tensaw are there other areas of the state with obviously there's pockets of that that have a lot more that we know of anyway um than others are there other areas of the state to mention that have i guess a researchable sort of population well it's it's up and down the the mississippi river it starts in saint mary and iberia parish and then hops up through the basin into point capee and then over into avoyles concordia and then just up the river tensaw madison so that and uh, they've now actually hopped over into east feliciana i have a collared female in east feliciana now my wife and she she kind of hops the border she she spends some of her time in mississippi and some of her time in East Feliciana. Well, my wife, I live in East Feliciana, uh, right outside of Clinton. And uh, and I mentioned in the in the intro that uh, I have seen this year, and and pro- probably some last year as well. But I've I've made note this year more that I've I've seen on Facebook and different places where there's more and more people posting trail cam pictures in in East Feliciana, area four. Uh, of bears so they're obviously where they haven't been seeing them before and my wife swears up and down i think it was two years ago that she saw one um on highway 959 one morning on her way to work so i I know they're around here and and they're 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 you know obviously expanding i i wonder you, you know what you mentioned there 
and 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 so many things in our state uh, kind of are like this. The Mississippi River Basin is kind of the the highway to to everything, and 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 it's the the luscious part of our state, I guess we could say, for for wildlife. So, and and obviously bears do are attracted to and eat a lot from human bait sites for that are intended for deer and hogs and 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 other things like that but what are, what are the primary foraging um type of habitat that you would expect to find where you're where you've got consistent bear activity what what is their preferred natural forage in our state you know it if deer eat it bear eat it it is basically one in the same truly one in the same so basically anywhere then <laughs> basically anywhere so how often do bears because i know it, 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 to some extent they do how often are they scavenge hunters in terms of meat because i mean there's stories and you know of people having a bear scavenge their deer carcass and stuff like that is that is that kind of a random thing by a bear or is that something that that they do a certain time of the year for certain nutritional value or or what's the What's the science? Well, obviously, that? it's at certain times of the year because it, it has to coincide with hunting season. But I also think it's a learned behavior. I think you'll have bears that never ever do it, and then I think you'll have bears that do it one time, and they learn their lesson, mm-hmm. and they learn how to do it. You know, right. so if if they do it once, they'll they'll do it another time. And and like like you mentioned earlier, some some animals are going to be more predisposed to it than than others just by their their personality. Bears um, can specifically be very, very bold or very, very shy. And so, it, you know, if you have an animal that is just not brave enough to do it, you know, you can easily run them off of a deer. And, and some bears are going to be very brave and bold. And, and by God, he's going to take the deer and he's not going to let you get it. Yeah. So it just depends <laughs> on the animal. So I guess that all of that that you just said, kind of answers the question deer bears don't hunt deer they, they're not they don't hunt prey animals is that correct i have i have never seen it and i have never heard anybody else report to me that they have seen it i believe that that bears will scavenge fawns in those first couple of days before fawn before a fawn will walk but I think it's it's purely coincidence. I don't spend I don't think they spend an awful lot of time looking for them. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, I think to me, kind of the biggest thing as just casual outdoorsmen that hunt and spend a lot of time in the woods and are interested in nature, and are obviously intrigued and have a lot of questions about this this large carnivore that exist on our landscape that they maybe grew up thinking they might never see or never have to deal with i common common it's commonplace for me in this conversation there's always somebody that's scared to death like oh my gosh a bear like i would i'd never hunt there again and i mean can you displace that fear because i i personally think it's unfounded i think that i have absolutely zero fear of I mean, a healthy fear of, a, of of being in the wrong situation with anything that's that's obviously strong enough to hurt me. But generally speaking, I don't, I don't have any fear that as I traverse my way through any given landscape in Louisiana, that a bear's watching me, waiting for a chance to attack. Can you can you displace that? You fear know, for I, 
I talk to so many people, obviously, in my job, and I, and, and I talk to people statewide. And what I've come to learn is that it seems to be more a fear of the unknown because the the people that I talk to in Point Capee Parish and Tinsaw or Madison or the people that live with bears and are familiar with them and encounter them regularly, while they may call me about some specific issue, they may even be mad about some specific issue. They're not, a, they're not afraid, you know, and it's because they are familiar with bears and bear behavior and they know how to behave themselves and react and respond appropriately to what they're seeing the bear do and the bear behave so that they know how to keep the situation safe. The people that are afraid don't know how to read the bear's behavior in order to know how to interpret the safety of what the situation is. So I get that. I understand that they can't interpret whether or not they are safe in that situation. So what we try to get people to do is understand what the situation is. So it gets to be a learning curve on how to interpret what the bear is doing. No, when the bear stands up on his back legs, he's not getting ready to attack. He's generally trying to figure something out. He's trying to get a better look at something, like me standing up on my tippy toes, or he's trying to get a better smell of something. He's trying to catch wind of something. He's trying to figure something out. That's what that bear is doing. You know, and so that is not a fear thing. That is just he's figuring something out. The other thing I tell, especially, I don't know, this seems to be a, a male thing. They get real upset when, well, the bear didn't run away like I thought he would. Well, did he leave? Yeah, he left. But but he he kind of sauntered away. So the <laughs> like, situation like they weren't was intimidated because the bear left. He didn't leave fast enough. That's right. <laughs> okay, well, he wasn't a deer. He's not a deer. He's, you know, not all bears are going to bolt away. He left. Mario, just to, to clarify, you're talking about when you say it's a male thing, you mean the, the hunter is the male? Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> not the <Sorry>. male bear. <laughs> yeah, th so the there guy expects to be, a, to be intimidating. There seems to be this preconceived notion that once you scare an animal that he ought to run really fast away. And bears <laughs> oftentimes don't. That they seems like an odd thing to be upset figure, about. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and leave this situation. And they leave, but they kind of leave at their own pace, which isn't always fast. Yeah. And that's or funny. they don't escalate the situation. They figure, okay, let's just agree to disagree. And you go your way and I go mine. And, and you know, it's a learning curve for people to be around bears. And, and so that's what I try to teach. You know, it's, Bears don't always behave the way you think they're going to, but what you've described to me is not aggressive behavior. It's just a bear kind of putzing about being a bear. Just go the other way. Yeah. Do you think that's kind of a, a, a natural given disposition for an animal that, that is in a different part of the food chain from what we're used to? I mean, in other words, and what I mean by that is a deer or a rabbit or a squirrel. I mean, those animals are born with a prey instinct. They know that they're hunted. They're a prey animal. And a bear doesn't necessarily have to be a man hunter to be, you know, I, I, like what reason do I have to, to your point, what reason do I have to turn inside out 
the, you know, yeah, just, he's not a prey animal to anything. Yeah, he's, it, it, yeah. I guess for lack of a better way to put it, like, I, I don't have an, a, a, a direct reason to really be that afraid of you. I'm just going to leave you alone. You leave me alone yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, you go your way. I'll go my way. Let's just so, agree to not like each other from a distance. Yeah. So, so it, that's a great point, Locke. And I was, I, I had, I was planning on asking that question also because when I went to Alaska in 2016, um, and and Maria, I'm probably going to get this wrong, so you please correct me. A grizzly bear and a brown bear are the same animal, just they're called different things in different locations. One's coastal and one's inland. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, good. Well, hey, I, I got that one right. <laughs> so a coastal grizzly bear, if I'm not mistaken, I think, I think that on the coast they're grizzlies. Is that right? You know what? It kind of just depends on who, who you're talking to. Generally, interior okay. bears are grizzly bears and, and coastal or coastal browns. Gotcha. Well, the coastal bears in many areas of Alaska are protected. You cannot hunt them. You're not allowed to. And that that's when you see the photos and the videos of you know, salmon fishermen along the banks of rivers having brown bears come up within 10, 15 yards, steal their, steal their salmon or push you off of a spot, get real territorial. Well, when we were, when I was hunting caribou on a rafting trip inland to Alaska, like, like two or 300 miles inland on the Good Pasture River, that was bear hunting territory. And we only saw one bear downriver um, the whole time we were floating for nine days. And the second that bear, about 250 yards downwind of us, caught our wind, he was in, he was 500 yards away up the side of a mountain in about two minutes. I mean, he, he's probably still running to this day. Um, yeah. and, and the, and my father-in-law who was a, um, an Alaskan and then also later in his career, a Colorado, um, wild, uh, game and fish biologist, he said, yeah, here they're hunted. That's how they react to human scent here. But if you go to the coast, he'll, they, they would have either stood their ground or, um, or not been afraid of you at all. So that's a great question, Locke, because you're right. Where you are on the food chain, whether or not you consider yourself to be in danger, has a lot to do with your disposition and how you act. Yeah. Well, it, it even gets a little more complex than that. It's, it's truly a, a sliding scale of habituation that animals go through. For example, you know, squirrels are hunted and they can behave very scarily. They run, they run from you. But squirrels in a park will approach people for a peanut because sure. over yeah. time they have learned that when people sit on this bench, oftentimes they have peanuts. You know, they, they, it's a learned behavior. They learn that there's no negative consequences associated with people. And they learned it because when they were a baby, they saw their mama do it. And so it's, a, they, it's just a, a habituation thing. And deer never learn to be habituated to people. They never learn any positive reinforcement associated with people, ever. At least not in Louisiana, yeah. they don't. Well, that, in some that, areas, that they points, do. That points pretty well. And deer well in those areas can become very habituated to people. Yeah. Look at the elk in Estes Park. They can be very yeah. habituated to people. Yeah. They walk down the middle of the street. So that's just a that's a habituation scale that that animals go through and and people people like to say that all the time if we could just hunt bears it would make a difference well it won't make a difference because 
in Louisiana, our population is so small that we're still only going to kill a few bears. It's not like the entire population is going to go through some negative experience with, with people and therefore have negative experience associated with people and, and suddenly be afraid of us. That, and, and, and I'd also try to remind people, even states that have robust hunting populations, you know, robust harvest with bears, still experience conflict with bears. You know, ba- bears can be challenging to live with. They're very smart and, and you know, they have a very good nose, which always leads their very hungry stomach somewhere. So, <laughs> you know, we just need to learn to be smarter than they are. I would say, you know, to that point, it's always fascinating to me. It's been fascinating to me for the last couple of years since we've, I say, inherited these bears on my family property. And it, it's only 50 acres. I mean, it's all it's it's all wooded. I mean, it's good habitat. But these two bears that we have, and they've been coming back for a couple of summers now, they're big bears. They're both boars. And it was actually only one the first year, and he brought a friend back with him um, this past summer. And I'm always fascinated because we don't feed them. And I look at an animal that's that big, and I think to myself, what in the world is here that is enough to sustain an animal that large because you know i mean they obviously just logic the logical deduction is 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 how much this animal has to eat to be that big and to maintain um you know just their physical size and health and all and and it's like you look around the landscape and yeah there's a lot of greenery in the summer and stuff like that but i mean it's not like we live on a farm where there's an orchard of, 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 of some sort or, uh, or any kind of agriculture. It's just, it's just Mississippi hardwoods, just the same kind of hardwoods you find in Louisiana. And we're not feeding anything like we do during deer season and stuff like that. So it's, um, I guess, you know, that's always fascinating to me. So what is it that they do? Like, how do they manage to keep enough, caloric and protein and all that kind of stuff in their diet by just four do they just eat all day well they certainly eat more during the fall than they eat during the spring and the summer you know in the spring when they are first getting going they eat a lot of green up you know that they eat a lot of grasses and and things like that and they do eat quite long i mean if you're eating grass if you're eating nothing but salad you have to eat a lot of it So they they could certainly eat most of the day. And then as as it moves into summer, they're eating buds and things like that. And then as things begin to ripen, they're eating berries and fruits as well as as greens and buds and tubers. I watched a whole bear family one time. I can't remember what time of year it was, but it was a cub count. So it was either May or June. I don't remember which one. And you know how you can get on a ridge and and suddenly you're just in a forest of of thistles. It's just nothing but but thistles. And this female bear would go down this this ridge and she would very carefully push the tall thistle over and just bite the heart out below the dirt level. Hmm. And she had done it to, I don't know. 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. She had three cubs with her and she would push it over and she would eat one and then she'd push another one over and her cub, her cubs would eat one. And she'd push another one over and she would eat one and she'd get her cubs to eat one. I finally pushed one over and dug one out with a knife and ate it just to see what it tasted like. <laughs> it's not good. Don't try it. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. That, that's all very, very interesting. It's, like I said, I've just been fascinated by that with my experience personally. And, and, and I've never seen these bears in person. We just get trail cam pictures of them, but we get them with enough regularity that it's obvious they don't leave. They stay right around our, our, our property there. And I, all the time I'm there in the summer doing work around the property and stuff. And I, and I, as I go around and I think to myself, what in the world are these things eating to be that big? How can they be? What are your deer eating? Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's kind of crazy when you look at something that large and you think about, you know, the, the ability for them to sustain themselves by just simply foraging on brows the same way a deer does. If you find their scat, you ought to be able to tell what they're eating and it should be readily apparent well i can tell you this last summer for and i don't i still don't know how this happened um i guess there's lots of ways that someone who's more uh uh, herpetologist or something could tell me but uh, i had a muscadine vine pop up on our property never been there before in the middle of the woods and it was a very big one like a big one that went up higher than i would have needed a ladder to get up there and um it was in July, I think, or whatever time of the year that the muscadines come. And, and, and I found it, and it was absolutely loaded. And there were a few on there that were ripe, and I plucked them off of there and ate a few, and they were real good. And I was really looking forward to, to coming back and picking that vine when they were all ready. And, I mean, it was a big enough vine. I, I felt like I was going to get, you know, pretty close to a five-gallon bucket full. It was a very large vine. I came back two weeks later, and those bears had eaten every single one. I ha- I say it was the bears. It had to be the bears because they pulled the vines from 10, 15 feet out of the tree. They pulled them all down in the road and ate every one of them. Well, it's probably fair. They probably planted it originally. No, that's kind of what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> <It's> the, <laughs> they, they, their scat, you know, is that what you're assuming there is that maybe right. they're, they're scat like planted a, a seed? I saw a study one time where grad students went out and collected bear scat, sifted through it and planted all the seeds in bear scat. And now I could, I wish I could remember the number of plants that grew from it. And I can't, it was in the thousands. Wow. Wow. Different species of plants. And I can't, I, I can't remember the number, but it was, it was impressive. Hmm. That's interesting. That's wild. I mean, they are well, natural Maria, seed dispersers. Maria, can you can you tell us more about your um, your research that you do on the Madden's Madden property uh, in northeast Louisiana? Sure. Right now, we are in post delisting monitoring phase, meaning when the Fish and Wildlife Service delists a species, you do they do it with an agreement with the state management authority which is us that we will continue to monitor the species to monitor you know its survival that it doesn't decline and we do that with continuing the hair snare which we're doing as well as keeping collars out there to track female survival and reproduction so we do that with the collars we track our female survival i have anywhere from 10 to 12 collars in each subpopulation. So I have 40 to 50 collars statewide. So I go onto the Madden properties and we trap bears, put collars on females. 
And then during the den season, we go in and determine what they have with them, whether she has yearlings from last year, whether she's alone, or whether she has cubs. If she has cubs of the year, we dart the female, change her collar, and and handle the cubs, get genetic material from the cubs, and put a little microchip in the cubs so we can track them in the future and then just move on. And we keep doing that year after year. That agreement lasts for another couple of years. And that basically just ensures that the species will not need federal protections into the future. That also allows us to keep kind of a finger on the pulse of the population so that as we move into the future, we can make some management decisions on these populations, meaning we can say, you know, the tensile population is at this level. So therefore, we believe that it can sustain a harvest of X number of bears, or it cannot, depending upon what that number is. That's really cool. So I guess kind of the final question that I had for, which honestly, we could probably do this for like two or three hours, because questions just keep coming to mind. But um, and maybe we we do a part two in in the future and 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 talk more about some more things. But I, I guess the 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 thing that I think most of our listeners are most interested in is is or or one of the things they might be most interested in is is what do you think? I guess just in your professional opinion, from all that you're able to uh, to to see from your position there, like what does it look like for there to be some sort of hunting? allowed for bears in the state in the future and and what do you think that might look like i i think that that it i think it can sustain a harvest right now we see somewhere depending upon the year we see between 40 and 55 bears killed on the road every year so Mm. you know that tells me that that we are absorbing some mortality already Mm -hmm. um i i think that Given the numbers that we see on our population studies every year, and then with the additional geography that we included this year and what we're going to do next year, I think that's going to really tell the tale in terms of additional numbers of bears. As long as we stay within a threshold, you know, we know that a bear population can sustain a 10% mortality limit. We know that. So it's not like we're playing in the dark here. So if, you know, given that as we move into the future, we can make those decisions. I think as long as we are very careful and we are very flexible, I think we can work to have a harvest. I I can't I can't say what year it will be, but I certainly hope that it's sooner rather than later. I think that the landowners and the hunters in Louisiana, you know, deserve that harvest opportunity. And I think the population can sustain it. Yeah. Well, that's great news. I mean, for a lot of reasons, not only for the obvious for what we're talking about of people having the hunting opportunity, but just that speaks volumes to the to the health of the population that you feel so strongly that it's going that yeah, direction. Yeah, you know, That's I great. agree. And, and you know, there's always going to be those that, that don't want a bear hunt. You know, a bear hunt is, is somewhat controversial, and it's certainly more controversial than a deer hunt in terms of, of anti-hunters. And, and I get that. But I, I think that, that I think it's a good thing. I think that the bear population can sustain a, a small harvest. And, and I think that 
it, it speaks volumes in terms of a population that recovered from very few animals to something that, that can provide that for the sportsmen in Louisiana. Yeah. So you, you said that the, you think the population currently is between 750 and 1,000 bears in the state. Is that right? Correct. Do you know what the population was in 1992 when it was added to the, the, the list? You know, the numbers the numbers back in 1992 were not collected in the same manner that we were co- that you know we are collecting them now. So it's a little difficult to compare them to how we have them now. But it is certainly safe to say that it was below 400 animals. Okay. Wow. Nice. So, so it's over, possibly over doubled. Doubled in size. Uh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep. And, you know, it's going, the landscape is going to change. And I think one of the things that's going to change, even the health of our population, is what the bears in Mississippi do. When you, when you look at a, a Google Earth view of Louisiana and Mississippi combined, there is no doubt that when those Mississippi counties really get going in bear numbers, they are going to so far surpass Louisiana in numbers because the habitat is so much greater than what we have. And in terms of bear habitat, it's so much better. It's, it's the road densities are far less. And, and you've been up there. It's not very hospitable to people. Mm-hmm. Sure. You know, it, it's just well, not the same type of habitat in terms of people running all over it. So, of course, bears many. are going to like it better. Yeah, and there's not as many suburb metropolitan areas. There's nope. just more like going to be There's going to be a lot more bears up there. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think you, you end up reaching this critical mass of, of bear numbers where they really begin to take off. And once you have something like that just next door, then it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. But and I think that's I think that's right around the corner. I think you're going to see a, a large number of bears in Mississippi, especially in those those Mississippi River parishes. Mm-hmm. That habitat well, is, is, is certainly conducive to that. What's what's the way in which that takes off? Is it um, are you waiting? Are you essentially waiting for the bears to make it there on their own, or is it a relocation relocation program and then they thrive after they're in that that region? Well, it's kind of a combination of things. You know, male bears can and are seen basically everywhere. They disperse and and they, you know, they'll go anywhere. Female bears are much more loyal to their mother's home range, and they do not move great distances. Having said that, you know, there's already a few female bears that are seeded in there that have crossed the river for one reason or another. I have a female bear in East Feliciana Parish. I know of a few a few more along those Mississippi um, counties along the river, and it only takes a few. But once you have females in in those far areas, you know the male bears have to find them, and yeah. and it just it takes a while. You know that that process takes a while. But once it begins to happen, and you get enough females over there that are regularly having cubs then then obviously the population can more quickly grow and they're not like deer they don't have cubs every year they you know they only have cubs every other year i'm glad he said that that was going to be another question i had for you yeah 
It, a female has cubs every other year. So when they go into the den, my fe- I have GPS collars on that, that you may have seen out at the Maddens. And, you know, they go into the den. They're they're going in basically now. And in January, everybody will be pretty much going in. And they give birth January, maybe late December, January into early February. And um, when she comes out of the den, she has her newborns with her. And she keeps them with her for a year and a half. When she dens the following year, she brings her yearling into yearlings into the den with her. And then when she emerges the next spring, you know, April the next the next year, she almost immediately begins to run those cubs off. It doesn't take her very long. And if she has a male cub, she runs him off pretty aggressively. Her female cubs, however, she She's not as aggressive. She allows the female cubs to hang around a little bit more. Maybe a loose association. You know, they may see each other every couple of days. They they really don't get too, too far apart. The male cub, however, she runs clean off. He has to go. So at a year and a half, the cubs have to go, and she comes back into estrus that summer, and she breeds that summer. And then she'll have yeah. cubs the following. Well, then den it, yeah. season. That 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 paints a pretty that paints a pretty clear picture of the time frame we're looking at for population growth because I, I that's that's uh, that's obviously one scientific fact that I had yeah, I know, had no idea that was it ta- the it just it takes a while for sure they're not they're they're slow to they're slow to grow a population because they just don't they don't spit out cubs every year. How many cubs do they have on average? They could have any, the largest litter I've ever been to is five, actually in Mississippi in Wilkeson County. Um, but generally, it's two. Yeah, two to three. Okay. Well, um, this is another. I, I, it, like Locke said, the questions just keep coming because we we didn't talk much before we had you on, and I've I've got kind of a lot of questions that are cataloged from other people and even questions that I had from a long time ago um, because like I said we've been wanting to talk to you for a while but as you're talking <laughs> Yeah, if you can't tell our podcast is we're kind of casual. We're I, we don't write anything down. We edit very little. Um, we don't have a lot of conversations beforehand. But um, the the thing that just came to mind was something that Levi told me a few weeks ago when I was at his place, and that was that um, he isn't sure if his bears hibernate. He sees less activity when it gets really cold and later into the season. But can you tell us whether or not the Louisiana back black bear is a hibernating bear or if they just kind of start to get a little a little sluggish and not seen as much? That's a really good question. You know, hibernation uh, is, a, is an actual definition to hibernation. And, and actually, no bears truly hibernate, but they go into a carnivorous lethargy or a torpor. And, but they do den. Um, having said that, not all bears in Louisiana will go into a den and stay there for the entire winter. Denning for a bear is is generally driven by food shortages. And let's face it, in Louisiana, foods don't really come up short until February 15th. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. obvious reasons. Yeah. So true. I personally believe that that has, has driven the the denning season back in louisiana 
you know, I, I see females that are active until the end of the deer season. Yeah. And, and I'm, I think it's, they are active because every week somebody magically brings them corn. <laughs> and as long as somebody's going to bring them something to eat, they're going to stay up and eat. Yeah. And when it no longer comes out there, they stop. So if you want to, if you want the bears to go away, just stop feeding them. That's the exactly. moral of the podcast. <laughs> if you want to get rid of your bears, stop feeding them. Stop, if you don't want them, <laughs> if you don't want your bears, stop bringing them corn. Because you know what, the bear is one hundred percent positive your neighbor will bring him corn. <laughs> That's well, a true funny. story. I, yeah, I hear it said jokingly that a bear, uh, at least a, a a black bear in Louisiana, is a three hundred pound raccoon. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) so that that makes a lot of sense when you look at it from oh it absolutely does but you know there's there's all kinds of things you can do to make things a little bit easier for instance bears are really lazy and they are not all about picking up one kernel of corn at a time so most of the guys if they really want to keep feeding you know they'll suspend a, a feeder so that yeah. it, when it goes off, it doesn't it doesn't put out a lot of corn at one time. A bear may still come to it, but it's a heck of a lot different than a bear sitting on a pile of corn. If there's a actual corn pile there or a feeder that he can pull that spinner down and get all the corn out, let's face it, he will just lay there and eat until he falls asleep. <laughs> but if he has to if he has to walk around and pick up one kernel of corn at a time. He's not really all about that. Yeah. He's a lot less interested in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 awesome. That's really well, cool. um I, I don't I don't have anything else right now. I, yeah. I, I think you've answered all of our questions more than to the fullest. And so I, I've learned a ton. <laughs> I really appreciate you having having uh, you being on with us today. Yeah. Oh, I enjoyed doing it. It's I'll been... be happy to do it again if y'all yeah, stacked up a bunch of other questions. I would love, I would love to have a follow up, you know, maybe next season or something, just to to talk more about the uh, how your how how the science is is moving and how your work is progressing and what we're seeing and how things might be changing a little bit. Um, definitely, and and for me as well. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been sure. I'd be I, happy I think to. I think we really answered a lot of the low hanging fruit type questions that people have and people that are starting to experience bears. So, tell everybody before we before we wrap up. Just tell everybody. Um, I guess you know if people have specific questions about bears or a problem or or something that that needs to come through your office. How would they get in touch with with the bear program and and, and that sort of thing. Sure. Great question. Well, you know, we do a couple of things. One of the things we do is we partner with all of the 16 southeastern states and we create a great website. It's bearwise.org. So there's a ton of information on that website. So I'd recommend they go to bearwise.org. I think they can get a lot of questions answered there. Or if they want to give me a call, I'm at our Lafayette Regional Office. That's 337. 337- Seven three five eight six six six. Awesome. Well, if you have a bear problem, or if you, or if you have something interesting going on that you think the department could benefit from, Marie Maria is the person to reach out to. And thank you again so much for taking your time to be on the podcast and share some of this great information with us. We greatly appreciate sure, it. Sure. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you guys and everybody. 
Make sure you go out to Louisiana Bowhunter. Check out some of the new swag we put out this year. If you didn't get it in your, if Santa Claus did not bring you some new Louisiana Bowhunter swag, you can get it at LouisianaBowhunter.com. So make sure you go check that out. And until next week, we will happy hunting, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's Bye-bye. episode of the Louisiana Bowhunter podcast. If you have anybody you'd like to hear on the show, reach out to us at info at louisianabowhunter.com. And if you want to help support Louisiana Bowhunter, go by your local archery shop and pick up some merchandise. If you don't have any at your local shop, let us know and we'll reach out to them. Or pick up your gear at louisianabowhunter.com and we'll ship it out to you same day. See you next week.